Section 17 of The Princess and Curdie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Princess and Curdie by George MacDonald. Chapters 28 to 30. Chapter 28 The Preacher. Various reports went undulating through the city as to the nature of what had taken place in the palace. The people gathered and stared at the house, eyeing it as if it had sprung up in the night. But it looked sedate enough, remaining closed and silent, like a house that was dead. They saw no one come out or go in. Smoke arose from a chimney or two. There was hardly another sign of life. It was not for some little time generally understood that the highest officers of the crown, as well as the lowest menials of the palace, had been dismissed in disgrace. For who was to recognise a Lord Chancellor in his nightshirt? And what Lord Chancellor would, so attired in the street, proclaim his rank and office aloud? Before it was day, most of the courtiers crept down to the river, hired boats, and betook themselves to their homes or their friends in the country. It was assumed in the city that the domestics had been discharged upon a sudden discovery of general and unpardonable percolation, for, almost everybody being guilty of it himself, petty dishonesty was the crime most easily credited, and least easily passed over in Gwintstorm. Now that same day was religion day, and not a few of the clergy, always glad to seize on any passing event to give interest to the dull and monotic grind of their intellectual machines, made this remarkable one the ground of a discourse to their congregations. More especially than the rest, the first priest of the great temple where the royal pew judged himself from his relation to the palace, called upon to improve the occasion, for they talked ever about improvement at Gwintstorm, all the time they were going downhill with a rush. The book which had, of late years, come to be considered the most sacred, was called the Book of Nations, and consisted of proverbs and history traced through custom. From it the first priest chose his text, and his text was, Honesty is the best policy. He was considered a very eloquent man, but I can offer only a few of the larger bones of his sermon. The main proof of the variety of their religion, he said, was that things always went well with those who profess it, and its first fundamental principle, grounded in inborn invariable instinct, was that every one should take care of that one. This was the first duty of man. If every one would but obey this law, number one, then would every one be perfectly cared for, one being always equal to one. But the faculty of care was in excess of need, and all that overflowed, and would otherwise run to waste, ought to be gently turned in the direction of one's neighbours. Seeing that this also wrought for the fulfilling of the law, insomuch as the reaction of excess so directed was upon the director of the same, to the comfort, that is, and well-being of the original self. To be just and friendly was to build the warmest and safest of all nests, and to be kind and loving was to line it with the softest of all furs and feathers. For the one precious, comfort-loving self there to lie, revelling in downiest bliss. 
One of the laws, therefore, most binding upon men because of its relation to the first and greatest of all duties, was embodied in the proverb he had just read. And what stronger proof of its wisdom and truth could they desire than the sudden and complete vengeance which had fallen upon those worse than ordinary sinners who had offended against the king's majesty by forgetting that honesty is the best policy? At this point of the discourse, the head of the leg-serpent rose from the floor of the temple, towering above the pulpit, above the priest, then, curving downward, with open mouth slowly descended upon him. Horror froze the sermon pump. He stared upward aghast. The great teeth of the animal closed upon a mouthful of the sacred vestments, and slowly he lifted the preacher from the pulpit, like a handful of linen from a wash-tub, and, on his four solemn stumps, bore him out of the temple, dangling aloft from his jaws. At the back of it he dropped him into the dust-hole among the remnants of a library, whose age had destroyed its value in the eyes of the chapter. They found him burrowing in it, a lunatic henceforth, whose madness presented the peculiar feature that in its proxyisms he jabbered sense. Bone-freezing horror pervaded Gwintstorm. If their best and wisest were treated with such contempt, what might not the rest of them look for? Alas for their city! Their grandly respectable city! Their loftily reasonable city! Where it was all to end, who could tell? But something must be done. Hastily assembling, the priest chose a new first priest, and in full conclave unanimously declared and accepted that the king in his retirement had, through the practice of the blackest magic, turned the palace into a nest of demons in the midst of them. A grand exorcism was therefore indispensable. In the meantime the fact came out that the greater part of the courtiers had been dismissed, as well as the servants, and this fact swelled the hope of the party of decency, as they called themselves. Upon it they proceeded to act, and strengthened themselves on all sides. The action of the king's bodyguard remained for a time uncertain. But when, at length, its officers were satisfied that both the master of the horse and their colonel were missing, they placed themselves under the order of the first priest. Everyone dated the culmination of the evil from the visit of the miner and his mongrel, and the butchers vowed, if they could but get hold of them again, they would roast both of them alive. At once they formed themselves into a regiment, and put their dogs in training for attack. Incessant was the talk, innumerable were the suggestions, and great was the deliberation. The general consent, however, was that, as soon as the priests should have expelled the demons, they would dispose the king, and, attired in all his regal insignia, shut him in a cage for public show. Then choose governors, with the Lord Chancellor at their head, whose first duty should be to remit every possible tax, and the magistrates, by the mouth of the city marshal, required all able-bodied citizens, in order to do their part toward the carrying out of these and a multitude of other reforms, to be ready to take arms at the first summons. Things needful were prepared as speedily as possible, and a mighty ceremony, in the temple, in the market-place, and in front of the palace, was performed for the expulsion of the demons. This over, the leaders retired to arrange an attack upon the palace. But that night, 
events occurred which, proving the failure of their first, induced the abandonment of their second intent. Certain of the prowling order of the community, whose numbers had of late been steadily on the increase, reported frightful things. Demons of indescribable ugliness had been espied careering through the midnight streets and courts. A citizen, some said in the very act of housebreaking, but no one cared to look into trifles at such a crisis, had been seized from behind, he could not see by what, and soused in the river. A well-known receiver of stolen goods had had his shop broken open, and when he came down in the morning, had found everything in ruin on the pavement. The wooden image of justice over the door of the city marshal had had the arm that held the sword bitten off. The gluttonous magistrate had been pulled from his bed in the dark, by beings of which he could see nothing but the flaming eyes, and treated to a bath of the turtle soup that had been left simmering by the side of the kitchen fire. Having poured it over him, they put him again into his bed, where he soon learned how a mummy must feel in its cerements. Worst of all, in the market-place, was fixed up a paper, with the king's own signature, to the effect that, whoever henceforth should show inhospitality to strangers, and should be convicted of the same, should be instantly expelled from the city, while a second, in the butcher's quarters, ordained that any dog which henceforth should attack a stranger, should be immediately destroyed. It was plain, said the butchers, that the clergy were of no use. They could not exercise demons. That afternoon, catching sight of a poor old fellow in rags and tatters, quietly walking up the street, they hounded their dogs upon him, and had it not been that the door of Derba's cottage was standing open, and was near enough for him to dart in and shut it ere they reached him, he would have been torn in pieces. And thus things went on for some days. CHAPTER Twenty Nine, BARBARA In the meantime, with Derba to minister to his wants, with Curdie to protect him, and Irene to nurse him, the king was getting rapidly stronger. Good food was what he most wanted, and of that, at least of certain kinds of it, there was plentiful store in the palace. Everywhere since the cleansing of the lower regions of it, the air was clean and sweet, and under the honest hands of the one housemaid, the king's chamber became a pleasure to his eyes. With such changes it was no wonder if his heart grew lighter as well as his brain clearer. But still evil dreams came and troubled him, the lingering result of the wicked medicines the doctor had given him. Every night, sometimes twice or thrice, he would wake up in terror, and it would be minutes ere he could come to himself. The consequence was that he was always worse in the morning, and had lost to make up during the day. While he slept, Irene or Curdie, one or the other, must still be always by his side. One night, when it was Curdie's turn with the king, he heard a cry somewhere in the house, and as there was no other child, concluded, notwithstanding the distance of her grandmother's room, that it must be Barbara. Fearing something might be wrong, and noting the king's sleep more quiet than usual, he ran to see. He found the child in the middle of the floor, weeping bitterly, and Derba slumbering peacefully in bed. 
The instant she saw him, the night-lost thing ceased her crying, smiled, and stretched out her arms to him. Unwilling to wake the old woman, who had been working hard all day, he took the child and carried her with him. She clung to him so, pressing her tear-wet radiant face against him, that her little arms threatened to choke him. When he re-entered the chamber, he found the king sitting up in bed, fighting the phantoms of some hideous dream. Generally upon such occasions, although he saw his watcher, he could not dissociate him from the dream, and went raving on. But the moment his eyes fell upon little Barbara, whom he had never seen before, his soul came into them with a rush, and a smile like the dawn of an eternal day overspread his countenance. The dream was nowhere, and the child was in his heart. He stretched out his arms to her. The child stretched out hers to him, and in five minutes they were both asleep, each in the other's embrace. From that night Barbara had a crib in the king's chamber, and as often as he woke, Irene or Curdie, whichever was watching, took the sleeping child and laid her in his arms, upon which, invariably and instantly, the dream would vanish. A great part of the day, too, she would be playing on or about the king's bed, and it was a delight to the heart of the princess to see her amusing herself with the crown, now sitting upon it, now rolling it hither and thither about the room like a hoop. Her grandmother entering once, while she was pretending to make porridge in it, held up her hands in horror-struck amazement, but the king would not allow her to interfere, for the king was now Barbara's playmate, and his crown their plaything. The colonel of the guard also was growing better. Curdie went often to see him. They were soon friends, for the best people understand each other the easiest, and the grim old warrior loved the minor boy, as if he were at once his son and his angel. He was very anxious about his regiment. He said the officers were mostly honest men, he believed, but how they might be doing without him, or what they might resolve, in ignorance of the real state of affairs, and exposed to every misrepresentation, who could tell? Curdie proposed that he should send for the major, offering to be the messenger. The colonel agreed, and Curdie went, not without his mattock, because of the dogs. But the officers had been told by the master of the horse that their colonel was dead, and although they were amazed he should be buried without the attendance of his regiment, they never doubted the information. The handwriting itself of the colonel was insufficient, counteracted by the fresh report's daily current to destroy the lie. The major regarded the letter as a trap for the next officer in command, and sent his orderly to arrest the messenger. But Curdie had had the wisdom not to wait for an answer. The king's enemy said that he had first poisoned the good colonel of the guard, and then murdered the master of the horse, and other faithful counsellors, and that his oldest and most attached domestics had but escaped from the palace with their lives. Not all of them, for the butler was missing. Mad or wicked, he was not only unfit to rule any longer, but worse than unfit to have in his power and under his influence the young princess, only hope of Gwyntstorm and the kingdom. The moment the Lord Chancellor reached his house in the country, 
and had got himself clothed, he began to devise how yet to destroy his master, and the very next morning set out for the neighbouring kingdom of Bossogras to invite invasion, and offer a compact with its monarch. CHAPTER Thirty, PETER At the cottage in the mountain, everything for a time went on just as before. It was indeed dull without Curdie. But as often as they looked at the emerald, it was gloriously green, and with nothing to fear or regret, and everything to hope, they required little comforting. One morning, however, at last, Peter, who had been consulting the gem, rather now from habit than anxiety, as a farmer his barometer in undoubtful weather, turned suddenly to his wife, the stone in his hand, and held it up with a look of ghastly dismay. "'Why, that's never the emerald,' said Joan. "'It is,' answered Peter. "'But it was small blame to any one that took it for a bit of bottle-glass.' "'For all save one spot right in the centre, "'of intensest and most brilliant green, "'it looked as if the colour had been burnt out of it. "'Run, run, Peter,' cried his wife. "'Run and tell the old princess. "'It may not be too late. "'The boy must be lying at death's door.' "'Without a word, Peter caught up his mattock, "'darted from the cottage, "'and was at the bottom of the hill in less time "'than he usually took to get half-way.' The door of the king's house stood open. He rushed in and up the stair. But, after wandering about in vain for an hour, opening door after door, and finding no way further up, the heart of the old man had well-nigh failed him. Empty rooms! Empty rooms! Desolation and desolation everywhere! At last he did come upon the door to the tower stair. Up he darted. Arrived at the top, he found three doors, and one after the other knocked at them all. But there was neither voice nor hearing. Urged by his faith and his dread, slowly, hesitatingly, he opened one. It revealed a bare garret room, nothing in it but one chair and one spinning wheel. He closed it and opened the next, to start back in terror, for he saw nothing but a great gulf, a moonless night full of stars, and, for all the stars, dark, dark, a fathomless abyss. He opened the third door, and a rush like the tide of a living sea invaded his ears. Multitudinous wings flapped and flashed in the sun, and, like the ascending column from a volcano, white birds innumerable shot into the air. "'darkening the day with the shadow of their cloud, "'and then, with a sharp sweep, "'as if bent sideways by a sudden wind, "'flew northward swiftly away and vanished. "'The place felt like a tomb. "'There seemed no breath of life in it. "'Despair laid hold of him. "'He rushed down, thundering with heavy feet. "'Out upon him darted the housekeeper like an ogress spider, "'and after her came her men.' "'but Peter rushed past them, heedless and careless. "'For had not the princess mocked him? "'What help lay in a miner's mattock, a man's arm, a father's heart, "'he would bear to his boy? "'Joan sat up all night, waiting his return, hoping and hoping. "'The mountain was very still, and the sky very clear, 
but all night long the miner sped northward, and the heart of his wife was troubled. End of section 17